Well, it's interesting how phrases enter into the common psyche of society, isn't it? And one of the, one of the phrases or one of the terms that, that's uh, come in in the last few years is, well, that's a real trigger. This happened and that really triggered me. We, we kind of hear that sort of stuff, right? It, it enters into our idea that, that there's an event that's going to happen, that if we know ourselves well or if we know somebody else, we know that it's going to trigger a sort of emotional and sometimes even a physical response, right? It's, it's a trigger. We got triggered and you can see it. And one of the most uh, entertaining times I saw a trigger was a number of years ago. I was at Regent in Vancouver taking a, a summer course. And my friend Tom Greentree was, was there full-time at the time. And, and um, in the summertime, uh, noon hours, they have these noon hour concerts in front of the Regent College out there in the common area. And musicians come and they play and people come and have their lunch all around. And so, so we're listening to this concert that goes on. And then uh, Tom kind of gives me a nudge and says, oh, look at this guy. So this, this person, he said, that guy is a phenomenal musician. He's just unbelievable. He's got he's, he's perfect to be done, but he's a real perfectionist. He can't, he can't take any errors at all. So you, he said, just watch this, just watch this. So this guy comes and he sits down. It's an open air and they're on. It's kind of like this, you know, you're just sitting on concrete steps and down there, there, there are all these people who are, you know, doing the music thing. So going along and then I hear Tom says, oh, and apparently there'd been a musical error. I, this all sounded good to me, but Tom could pick up on this, and I hear him say, oh, and so I look over at this dude, <laughs> and you could see his eyes. I mean, I could see it was a ways away, and I could see his eyes, and his jaw gets all tense, and he grabs his food, and he stuffs it back in his bag, and he leaves. He just can't take this thing. It was a, a trigger, a trigger. I mean, he knew, Tom knew, so he knew this is going to trigger me time there's an error. Away he goes. An emotional and then a physical response. We get triggered. And uh, if we know a person, sometimes we can expect that can respond. So sometimes if we don't know, we don't really know what's going on, sometimes a trigger event can happen, and we kind of think, where in the world did that come from? That's a bit of an overreaction or whatever the case may be. Well, well, in the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus gets triggered. And he gets triggered in such a way that, that honestly it causes quite a bit of confusion around the people that were, were watching him. And so let's take a look and see, because what's going to happen is it triggers Jesus into really bringing to a climax an event that's going to change all of history and that actually God wants to trigger in us a life-changing response. Okay, so let's take a look. John uh, chapter 12, beginning with verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. Remember this is coming to Passover. And so uh, non-Jews would come to Passover too. God-fearing Jews would come. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Who wouldn't? We'd like to see Jesus. And so Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, and that triggers a response. Here's the trigger. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many more seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And so what shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour? No. But it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came down from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the crowd that heard it said that it sounded like it had thundered. They didn't recognize it as a voice. Another said, no, no, no. An angel has spoken to him. And Jesus said, listen, this voice was for your benefits and not mine. I know what's going on. This is to clue you in. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. And the crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? We're confused. We're messed up. Jesus said to them, you're going to have the light just a little bit longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light. And while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. And when he finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Do you see the triggering event? It's kind of a strange thing. That what, what triggers Jesus is that, is that some Greeks, now, it didn't mean necessarily that they were from Greece. That was just a, in those times, you know, you had Jews and so and then you had the Greeks. And, and really it means anybody that wasn't a Jew. So some Gentile people, some, some Greek culture people, some Gentiles come and they say, we want to see Jesus. They were there from Jerusalem and they'd heard about Jesus. Who knows what they heard? Maybe about the raising of Lazarus, maybe about his teaching, probably about his signs and going. And they come and they want to see Jesus. And the disciples tell Jesus this. And it triggers Jesus to say, the hour has come, now is the time for my glory. He kind of ignores them. We never hear about these people that asked about to see Jesus again for the rest of the passage. He just, it's, a, it's a triggering event. And he says, now my hour has come, the time for me to be glorified. It's kind of a strange response. What in the world is going on here? What was it that these Greeks, and all of a sudden they have this thing? Well, we've got to break it down a bit. And and honestly, it's going to get a little bit nerdy, okay? But I'll try and make it as least nerdy as I can. And just just track with me in this whole thing. The hour has come. I don't know if you've noticed as we've gone through here, but... I think it's, I counted five times before this event that Jesus speaks about the hour. And each time he's done that, he said, my hour is not yet. The first one you'll remember is to his mom. Remember the water into wine? And he said, no, no, no. Uh, you know, my hour is not yet come. Woman, leave me alone. My hour is not yet come. And so five times it goes, it's either when, when Jesus is going to be grasped to be exalted by a crowd or alternatively, when people try to grab him to kill him. And it'll say, John will say, but his hour was not yet, or his time was not yet. Well, now all of a sudden, it's been building to this, and now when these uh, Gentiles come and they say, we want to see Jesus in the midst of Passover, he says, this is it. Now is the time. Now is the hour. Now is the climax time for everything that we've been leading up to until now. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see what happens? There's a little bit of a a chain reaction here. The Greeks come, and he says, okay, the Son of Man is going to be glorified. What he's doing is, or 
is triggered in Jesus' heart and mind when these non-Jews come to him is he remembers Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. It's an important passage of scripture. Uh, Before this hand, you've got Daniel in the lion's den, you know, where he's saved from the lions in chapter 6. And then he starts into chapter 7, and Daniel has this weird vision where four different beasts, uh, some sequentially out from under the water, and they are defeated. And then comes verses 13 and 14. So do we have it here, or do I need to go it here? Can you read it? That's true. Daniel, the Old Testament. Okay, here we go. Daniel. Now, here we go. This is what it says. Verse 13. In my vision at night, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Okay, the Son of Man. That's, the, that's a key phrase. One of the ways that Jesus describes himself throughout the Gospels is, I'm the Son of Man. Okay, so it's a trigger. It's a, it's a link we need to have, a hyperlink, so to speak. One before me is like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He's coming on the clouds. Okay. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all of the nations and people of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see what he's doing? What happens is these, these, the nations are now coming to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, this is it. This is now the time when the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. This is now the time when the Son of Man is going to be glorified. This is now the culmination of all things. This is what Daniel prophesied about. The nations are going to be defeated and the kingdom of God is now going to start in a new way. And that kingdom will never be defeated. And that kingdom will never, ever end. Now is the time for the fulfillment of the expectation of Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to be glorified. But then there's this twist. This twist that the crowd didn't expect as we're about to see. A twist that honestly is a bit of a surprise to me every time I think about it in John. Because you see, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, I'm going to be glorified, what is the glory of Jesus? The glory of Jesus is his death. Is his crucifixion on the cross. And so he says, listen, I'm going to be glorified, and let me explain to you what glorification is. If a kernel of wheat stays alive, it just does not much. But if it dies and is planted, then out of that will come much life. And so I'm going to die like a kernel of wheat so that life for many can actually come up. And in verse 32, I'm going to be lifted up. And that's a, a dual meaning to that lifted up. It does mean exalted. It does mean lifted up on high. And we sing praises, you know, lift up your name on high, all those things. But it also is the idea of the crucifixion. That he'll be lifted up before a mocking crowd and die for our sake. And what Jesus is saying, listen, you Greeks, you want to see me? You want to know me? You want to understand what my glory is? And listen, you are never really going to see me. You're not going to see who I am. You're not going to understand what God is like. You're not going to know my character until you see me humiliated on a cross. You're not going to know me. I mean, you know that they've done these signs, have done these miracles, have had these teachings, have done all these things, have raised Lazarus from the dead. 
But you're not going to understand me. You are not going to understand the living God. You're not going to understand who I am. You're not going to understand the character of the God we worship until you see me humiliated, giving my life for your forgiveness by going through the torture and the humiliation and the shame of death on the cross. Because until you see me like that, you're not going to know who I really am. Because that is my glory, to suffer for your kind. But don't miss this. It's also the glory of the Father. So Jesus says, you know, Father, glorify your name. And God says, I am glorifying my name. I am going to show my character. That's what glory is. It's, it's to do with our weightiness, our character, our presence, our being. And the Father says, that's me, because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. My weightiness, my glory, is I'm willing to sacrifice myself. I'm willing to humble myself. I'm willing to humiliate myself for your sake. The glory of God, the glory of the God that we worship, is selfless, humble, self-sacrifice. Jesus says, you want to see me? This is who I am. This is God's glory to lay down his life so that our sins can be forgiven and we can live forever. And what great news that is, that this is the God that we serve, that this is the God who reveals himself. This is the majesty of the living God is that he is the tortured Christ for our sake. But then there's a trick. Jesus says, and listen, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, it's a word, follow me, disciple. If you want to be my follower, my disciple, your glory is to die as well. That's what verse 25 says. Anyone who loves this life will lose it, while anyone who hates this life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I like how the message put it. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. And here's the good part. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever. Real and eternal. To lose our life is to live a life of reckless love. You know what reckless love is? Reckless love is the love that doesn't count the cost. Reckless love is the kind of love that we do sometimes, and people around us say, are you crazy? Don't you understand what that's going to cost you? Don't you understand the impact on your life? Don't you understand what the future that that's going to lead you? You have got to be nuts. That is reckless love. And I don't know about you, but most of the time, I don't have reckless love. I have pretty heavy count-the-cost love. Yeah, I'll do that, but only up to here. Oh, no, no, I don't know where that's going. And Jesus said, no, don't you understand that I have reckless love for you? That is my glory. That is my character. That is my mission. I give my everything for you. And if you want to call yourself a follower of me, Alan then you need to live with that same kind of reckless, reckless, not counting the cost, love. You've got to die to yourself.
in very real ways, not just some poetic, nice way to stand up and talk to you about or maybe sing songs about laying down our life like we did. No, no, no. Stop for a minute. What does that mean to lay down our life for you, your kingdom come and all this kind of stuff? What, what does that mean? Well, to die to myself means I've got to give up resentment. When somebody does me dirt or some circumstance in life makes it difficult for me and I can be resentful of it and every time something reminds me of it, I can just kind of feel myself tense up a little bit. No, 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 no. Alan, if you're going to follow me, you're going to die to yourself. You, you don't get to be resentful. You don't get to be greedy. You get to be recklessly generous. Even though it might even put your own stuff in danger. You don't get to be a man of anger. You don't get to be selfish. Alan, if you're going to be a follower of me, then you need to die to yourself and you've got to give up unforgiveness. And no matter how much it hurts or how wrong it was, you need to forgive. You need to give up on thinking that the riches of life are all for you. Alan, you need to give up the autonomy and control of your life. Holy jump. I don't get to just do what I want to do. I don't get to just respond the way I want to respond, what comes naturally to me. No. You don't get to be autonomous. You don't get to make the decision. You get to live in obedience to me as my spirit leads you where my spirit will take you regardless of the cost. You got to give up defensiveness. And, you know, I, I was thinking about that, that defensiveness and reading some on it there. And, and normally, you know, for me to be defensive, then it just means, you know, get aggressive and attack the other person. But one guy had this incredible definition of defensiveness, which I thought, oh, it's this. You don't get to bulletproof your heart. You don't get to bulletproof your heart. I don't know, man. It's so tempting to bulletproof my heart. Because you go through life and you do what's right. And you follow Jesus and you lay down your life. And somebody or some circumstance just rips your heart apart. And after a while, you think... Forget that. I'm going to keep people at a distance. I'm not going to emotionally engage. Sometimes even with our family members, our spouses, our friends, people, we, we bulletproof our hearts so that we don't get hurt. And Jesus said, no, no. I know it's tempting. And I know it hurts. You don't get to bulletproof your hearts. You get to bleed and hurt and suffer and be humiliated for the sake of Jesus. And that's your glory. And for that, the Father rewards you. Hmm. Man, that's hard. Why would Jesus do it? Why should... I do it. Why should you do it? Why should we be bothered? Why should we hurt that much? I mean, jeepers. Come on. 
Well, what's interesting is that Jesus understands that this is not easy. Jesus understands that this is hard. That's what verse 27 is all about. Now my soul is troubled, and so what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I don't want to do it anymore. No, it's for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus says his heart was troubled. It's It's an incredibly intensive, emotional word. It sort of, it has to do with being shaken up and disoriented and, and thrown a loop for and, and cast into confusion and, and mental and spiritual anguish. I mean, that's, he actually is quoting Psalm 6 where David says, Look, look my, I am experiencing deep anguish of my heart. Because, man, this hurts. Man, this hurts. And Jesus experienced this. He took on flesh so that he could become a man, so that he could experience things as we experience them, so that, as Hebrews says, we can go to the throne of Christ with confidence because he has suffered. He's experienced humanity just as we have. And our hearts get torn asunder, and we find ourselves sometimes in deep anguish. And we want to shrink away from reckless love and get a bit more controlled maybe. Maybe just put my foot in it a little bit, not my whole being. And Jesus says, I, I, what should I, should, I, should I say? that You know, David said it and God rescued him. And, and so, you know, this is, this is John's equivalent of, you know, Jesus in Gethsemane saying, Lord, you know, take this cup from me. My heart, I'm being torn apart here. I don't want to do it anymore. But I can't. Because I came for this very hour. It is my purpose. It is my purpose to show the glory of God. It's the aim for my life. Is that by living out reckless love in the face of people who just crucify me. The Father's glory is seen. And it's the purpose of my life. You know. One of the first times I was really sort of uh, exposed to this, I was listening to a sermon a number of years ago by Louis Giglio. I can't remember the name of the sermon. I tried to look it up, couldn't find it. But I remember this. He preached it back in the olden days when we used to sing this song, Above All, the chorus. Remember that chorus? You know, you know Above All, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then Giglio said, and the chorus goes like this. Crucified, laid behind a stone. Remember it? I'd sing it for you, but you know what would happen. You live to die, rejected and alone, you know, like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. And Giglio said, you know, that's a really nice sentiment that, you know, Jesus hanging on the cross, he's, he's thinking about me, he's thinking about Alan, and I suppose in some sense. He says, but I remember Giglio's face, he kind of does this thing and he shakes his head. When Jesus hung on the cross, He thought of the glory of the Father. He thought, this is to show the world what the Father's heart is. This is to show the world what reckless love is. So that all of the world would turn to the Father in adoration and thanksgiving. Jesus saying, you know, my heart is in anguish. I'm being torn apart. 
I want to bulletproof my heart. I want to move away. I don't want to do it anymore. But the purpose of my life is to bring glory to the Father. And so I'm going to die. And as I tried to wrestle through that this week, a holy jumping. Is that the purpose of my life? Am I really conscious that the purpose of my life is to bring glory to the Father through reckless love, through a non-bulletproofed heart? Do I live that way? Am I really, is my desire to bring God the glory so much that I'm willing to die to myself and give up those things in very real ways? Anger, resentment, unforgiveness, all that stuff that's so tempting and feels so good in the minutes. Am I really ready to give that up for the sake of the glory of the Father? Because that was the motivation strong enough to take Jesus for the cross. And that, I suggest, is motivation strong enough and almost about it to die to ourselves and to live reckless love with an open, vulnerable, wounded heart. Challenging thoughts. But there is a sweetener. There is a sweetener. Jesus goes on and says, but we can remember the victory and we can jump on board for that. The Father, it says, the Father will honor those who follow the Son in this way. The delight of the Father can be experienced in our hearts if we can, if we can just silence the, the cries of agony that we sometimes go through and hear the Father's song of delight over us as we looked at last week. I mean, look at what it says here in verse 32. And falling again. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to them. He did this to show the kind of death that he would die. And he goes on and says that now is the time of judgment. Now is the time when the prince of the earth will be cast out. Jesus is lifted up. There's this double meaning of the crucifixion and his exaltation. Judgment takes place. Sin and its sponsor, Satan, the prince of the world, are judged. The crucifixion proclaims that the world is messed up, that sin is destroying our relationships. It proclaims that the way we encounter life, the way we encounter each other, it shows that Satan is the prince of this world. And it says that this is a really messed up thing. The world is judged to be a mess and in need of a savior to deal with sin. And so to deal with sin so that people can have the freedom, so that reconciliation can take place, so that people can be forgiven is Jesus lifted up, crucified to pay the penalty and then lifted up in exaltation to draw all people to him in salvation and victory. And the sweetener is that not only can we hear the sweet song of delight that God has for us when we follow Jesus and God honors us in that sense, we get to live forever in the presence of the living God. And we get to experience life of reconciliation 
and forgiveness and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness as the Holy Spirit leads us into that place. He says this weird thing in the Satan, now Satan is cast out. The world has been judged. It's sinful. I'm going to take care of that mess that it's in. And when I do that, Satan is cast out. You know, I got really distracted. But what in the world does that mean? I spent a long time trying to figure this out. Didn't really get it. It's kind of a strange thing. What does it mean? It has to do with the defeat of Satan. And so and some people say, listen, what that means is, is that the cross has defeated Satan, that he no longer has to govern your hearts and minds, that you can be free from those things that lead us away from the reckless love that God has from us because Satan doesn't have to govern your attitudes. Satan doesn't have to govern your responses. Satan doesn't have to govern your way of doing things. No, he's been cast out. And now, instead of Satan governing our hearts, Jesus himself governs our hearts. Satan has been cast out of our hearts, is what some guys say. Other guys say, no, 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 that's not what it means because we've still got the struggle and so on. What it's talking about is that now when Christ died on the cross, Satan is cast out of heaven. The accuser can no longer accuse. And it goes back, remember in the book of Job? <clears throat> it has, you know, you've got, the, uh, you've got the, the divine counsel happening there. The father's there and the angels are there. And it says, and the Satan, the accuser comes and says, you know, God says, hey, if you consider my servant Job, what a great guy he is. Okay, let me add him, says Satan, right? Because he's just, he's only doing this faithfulness stuff because you're nice to him. And I accuse him of being selfish. And some guys say what it is, is that now when you're in Christ, Satan can't accuse you. The blood of Christ covers you. And the accuser has been cast out of the judgment hall by the power of Jesus. And you need no longer stand accused because you are forgiven and you are washed clean. Some guys say, I can't be that because of Revelation 20. It could be that. And so they kind of debate, go back and forth. But here's what I know for sure it means. Is that the back of Satan's power has been broken. That the forces of darkness can be driven back by the light of Jesus and the children of light. We just finished singing, the force of hell, no force of hell can stop the beauty changing hearts. The back of Satan's power has been broken in the world and in our lives. As we live as children of light and we live out this reckless love, we show that he is in fact defeated. But all this teaching throws this crowd into massive confusion. Because they recognize that language of Jesus about being lifted up. They recognize that as coming from Isaiah chapter 52 in that whole little section there about the suffering servant. And they're like, what are you talking about? We're expecting a kingdom that will never end. We're expecting a great victorious uh, general to come through here and wash away. What are you talking about? And set up this kingdom that's going to last forever. And you're talking about dying and being lifted up and suffering. And, oh, what in the world are you, are you on about? And what's interesting is that Jesus, again, doesn't answer it. Instead, he goes on and he says, listen, for as long as you have the light, you need to get into the light because your time is limited. It's almost like Jesus saying, listen, you know what? There's going to be all kinds of questions that you have that you're not going to have a satisfactory answer for. There's going to be all kinds of things that you're going to hear that Jesus said, and how do we do this, and how does that work, and this, all this, so on. And Jesus is like saying, listen, you can't get 
stymied by the questions that you have that don't necessarily make sense to you. Your time is limited. I'm only going to be around for a while, he says, so you need to come into the light, even though not all of your questions are answered. And it's the same thing for us. He's giving us this invitation. He you're going to have all kinds of questions and there's going to be all kinds of things that happen in your life that don't make sense. And the more obedient to me you are, the probably the chances are more you're going to find things that don't make sense to you as the Spirit leads you into reckless love with a vulnerable heart. But our time is limited to be the light in the world. Our time is limited to live in the light to die to ourselves and to live for the glory of God. And so this passage was quite a trigger for me, speaking of triggering. It triggered in me some pretty tough questions for myself. Number one, Do I take seriously enough understanding that coming to Jesus demands laying down my life in very real ways? Do I understand that? And do I understand it enough that it troubles me? Because Jesus is like, listen, if you really understand what I'm asking of you, you're going to be like me. Your heart's going to have some anguish. You're going to have some trouble. You're going to have some fear. You're going to have some, man, why am I bothered doing this? Or do I have to do this again? If we really understand what Jesus is calling us to and calling us to be, this reckless, non-defensive, non-bulletproof-hearted, non-ego-filled, selfless instrument of the love of God. If that doesn't trouble my heart... Do I really understand how profound the call really is? Because if I really understand it, it should be like, ooh. The second thing that triggered in my life is how motivated am I by the drive to bring glory to the Father? Is that the driving force of my life? Is that my, my focus? That all that I am and all that I do somehow has to bring glory to the Father. And everything that I'm going to do, I need to run it through this grid. How will this bring glory to my Father? How will this bring glory to my Father? And number three, it triggered me to ask, am I living in the light? Even when I have unanswered questions. Even when I, I don't understand why, why do I need to keep pouring out this reckless love? Why, why can't I be a little bit resentful? <laughs> no. There's all kinds of questions. And the questions, I suppose, will never end until the new creation. But Jesus said, you're going to have questions. But I ask you to have faith in me. And die to yourself for the sake of the glory of the Father. So I don't know about you, but I've got to chew on these questions quite a bit. So let's take a couple of minutes to pray. And to just ask the Holy Spirit, what does this mean? To die to myself 
for the glory of the Father. In spite of questions, in spite of hardship, in spite of anguish of heart. And how do I live that out tomorrow? Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful that your hour came, the culmination of all of history, and that you did not shrink back. but that you entered into your glory, which was to suffer for our sake. <coughs> to render the judgment that the world is messed up, that people's lives are messed up, that people's relationships are messed up, and that the only way for them to be truly healed is for you to die in payment for sin and show a new way of life. And we're so thankful for that for that reckless love. But Lord, for me at least, it's, it's, it's hard to die to myself, to give up these real things of pride and unforgiveness, anger, resentment, because sometimes it just feels so justified. And it's hard to not bulletproof our hearts because we get hurt and we think, <laughs> not doing that again. And we close off even from people who love us, even from you. So help us, Lord, to know what it is to die to ourselves and to live lives of reckless love. And help us not to put it off to next year. If there's any watching or any here that have not, you know, stepped into the light for the first time and, and taken the sacrifice of Jesus upon themselves and said, yeah, I want to be the disciple in spite of the cost, then move them forward. And for the rest of us, probably most of us who have named Jesus as Lord, don't let our light dim. Let us live as children of the light. To the glory of the Father, in spite of the cost. We pray through Jesus our Lord. Amen. <laughs>